Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant, health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today our guest will be Senator Mike Braun, recently elected from the state of Indiana, and he is passionate about health care legislation. And before we interview him, we would like to set the stage of healthcare litigation and legislation, rather, in general. <laughs> not a lawyer today. <laughs> uh, not today. Lawyer was last week. You guys should tune in for our discussion <laughs> with Lewis Brown about Medicare for All. But today we're discussing it with a legislator. And we want to set the stage by discussing Catholic principles of health care, things that we should really consider, especially as Catholics, when designing what a healthcare system should look like. And, and the Catholic Medical Association has an active healthcare policy committee. And several years ago, they put together a document that lists 10 healthcare principles for Catholic Catholics. And I think that you'll find that some of these principles uh, will be discussed in the interview with Senator Braun. And many of these things, I'd, I'd like to think our listeners would say, well, that's common sense. Shouldn't everybody just be able to agree on that? But when you look at legislation in particular, some move us closer towards these ideals and some move us further away. And so I think these 10 guideposts will be an excellent resource for us. So the first of these principles is protection for the most vulnerable. And that's like Pope Francis saying, reach out to the peripheries. And a lot of people that are sidelined in our society are the poor or the sick or those who have you know, big health problems. Well, and especially as Catholics, we're supposed to have a preferential option for the poor, which is Love that what term. Christ has taught us, and that's something that's always been kind of even written into the Hippocratic Oath, that you take patients as they come. If someone's seeking your help, you want to help them, and especially those in, in the vulnerable situations are where they need us most. And, uh, you know, one of the lines I've been using in my own head lately with patients, uh, if at all possible, is find a way to say yes. If there's a way to say yes for certain care that somebody needs and it's not, you know, uh, uh, out there, you know, rationally, uh, find a way. Uh, A second point is the dignity of choices. I think this is overlooked a lot of times, but it is a key principle, you know, analogous or almost derived from subsidiarity. But because of human dignity, we have the right not only to integrity of our body, of our own well-being, but also of the choices we make, not only ethical choices, but choices about health care. So right now, it's hard to know what our choices often are. If a doctor says, well, we need to see a specialist X. Well, how do we compare the different specialists that we could potentially see? How do we know what the different potential prices are? Yeah, you go to two, one of two different hospitals. I'm just thinking of my town, and the prices can be vastly different. The only thing you know for certain is you won't know till you get the bill. And, and then there's a lot of people that are, are without choices because of their insurance. Even folks who are on Medicaid, for example, it seems like it's a good thing they have health care coverage and the government pays for it so it's very inexpensive or free however if something's not covered by medicaid and they want it i am legally not allowed to charge them for services so that's written into the law so these folks are actually without choices and i've run into that many times just in my own practice where people say i'd be willing to just pay out of pocket that's the health services that i want i'm sorry legally you're not allowed to do that yeah, I was astounded to learn that years ago, too, that we are not allowed to. Because with, with some of the plans, uh, some of the Medicaid plans, uh, we actually lose money to see them. We don't even get enough money to pay our overhead. So it would be cheaper for us to see them just free than to bill Medicaid. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a messed up system. But choices is an important part, as is the idea of solidarity. Number three. Solidarity is the idea that with universal coverage, we need a shared risk and not universal coverage necessarily that the government supplies. That's not the only type of universal coverage. You could do that through a private system. You could do it through a charitable system. But the idea of solidarity, especially with the sick and the poor, we are really all in this together. Yes. Uh, And number four among the principles is one near and dear to Catholics, and that is respect for life. Yes, it should go without saying, you'd like to think. And many people of of the Catholic faith and really the l- religious persuasion in general would appreciate that life begins at conception and goes until natural death should not be infringed upon, especially at the extremes. 
and people should be allowed to respect life. However, we know even in Canada, you have to, as a physician, refer for euthanasia. Even if you think it's wrong and you, it's against your beliefs, you are not allowed to be a doctor if you don't do that. And that is something that is extremely scary to me as a practicing physician. And so respect for life and conscience by association is something that really needs to be considered. Yes, without respect for life, what is a physician? What are we treating? You know, I've been hearing a lot lately about what does it mean to be healthy? We've forgotten what the health is that a physician is out there to treat. A physician is becoming more and more a provider, like a vending machine. Just, well, I want service X, give me service X. But aren't we allowed to say we think something else is better for you and we think this harms you? Without respect for life, we're not allowed to do that anymore as as physicians or as nurses or as nurse practitioners, physician assistants. We all want to be able to use our expertise and wisdom to help you, our patients. And presumably you want to get an opinion of something more than just a textbook. That's out there on the Internet. That's free, actually. The idea that you're coming to see a physician means that you have a question you'd like their experiential guidance based on the many other patients and conditions that they've seen and treated. Which reminds me of an interview we did last uh, fall that where the, uh, the guest said that every interaction between a physician and patient is by nature a moral interaction, an ethical discourse. Uh, a fifth principle uh, that has a big name, but uh, most people understand what you once you explain it, is Adhering to the principle of subsidiarity. Yes, I think that might be one of my favorite pillars of Catholic social justice. Oh, yes. I mean, it simply means that the level of government or the level of society closest to the problem should have the most say in how it's taken care of. So, for instance, if a family can take care of it, then the family takes care of it. Well, if the family needs a neighborhood, then the neighborhood. If the neighborhood needs the the city, then the city, if it, the county, and you don't use the federal level until no other level can handle it. Or a world government. So <laughs> if yes. there was a problem in your home with your family, you would be better apt to take care of that, and that's the most ethical way to do it, rather than having the United Nations or the federal government or the state government or the local government or your neighbors or your neighbor or the school board or somebody else telling you. As a parent, that's really your role. And so subsidiarity is giving just due to the people closest to the issue at hand. And in fact, in this little document from the uh, Healthcare Policy Committee of the, the CMA, it, it even says that uh, federal resources could be provided to states through grants to provide resources to help the needy. If you listen to our interview last September with former Senator Rick Santorum about uh, his health care choices proposal, it includes that sending back so much of this money that's collected in federal taxes that is used for health care to the states because the states can determine better than Washington, D.C. how each state can best use it. Yes, and, and the hope would be that the states would even allocate that to the local local areas because you're going to know in your community the best way to care for your health and whatnot. And then you have a chance for a little bit of a healthy competition to see who can figure out the best way to use this money and then where it's helping people the most, other areas have an opportunity to emulate it. The, the next principle that we'd like to highlight is the centrality of the doctor-patient relationship. This is something that we talk a lot about as physicians, we talk a lot about in, in medical school, and it's something that we all hold in, in healthcare very dear to our heart, the relationship between caregiver and patient. Now, that is something that many people nowadays might not even appreciate, but it has really eroded significantly with the introduction of the electronic medical record. I read a study in JAMA yesterday that they've studied several folks in different residencies of different specialties, and they have effectively proven that they spend more time with the computer than with the patient. I think a lot of practicing physicians could tell you that naturally, that that's something that we are forced to do. It's not out of desire. And really, it was designed by, you know, the health insurance companies, the government, to keep metrics on that relationship, largely to help direct money. Doesn't help patients feel better. Doesn't help doctors do a better job. If anything, I think it makes it worse. And that is one of the things that not only leads to physician burnout, but also leads to patients saying, 
the doctor didn't even look at me. He was just typing the entire time. I did. The patient's needs are not met. Even if the doctor says, you know, the computer's happy, I, I made sure their blood pressure was, medicine was refilled, everything looks good in the computer. The computer's not the focus of that relationship. It shouldn't be. The focus should be the patient. Uh, thankfully, in my own practice, and we are an exception, we have been able to really limit that. Uh, one year, we had to take a penalty, got less money from Medicare because of it. But it was worth it because we could still focus on our patients and not on a computer uh, when they're in the room. And as Andrew said, no study has proven that it makes health care any better. And by the act of measuring certain things, you change the interaction of the doctor and the patient. One other point that we'd like to make as we're wrapping up our top 10, we have four points left, is proper incentives. The incentives of paying for health care, how much it costs for a patient to pay for it, how much it costs the doctor to provide it. These need to be based on common sense things like quality and the actual overhead cost for providing the services. There's a lot of things that are going on currently, such as pay for performance or value-based purchasing are some of the phrases that you may hear. And basically what this leads to, going back to the EMR um, analogy that I made in the last point, is that doctors spend so much of their time or they're encouraged to spend so much of their time meeting all these little metrics. Make sure all your patients have a diabetes measurement, hemoglobin A1C, under 7 but well, what happens about my patients where that's unhealthy for them? It's not good for them. It doesn't matter. The government's going to say, we're going to pay you less because you didn't make these metrics, even though I know it's not what's right for the patient. So we have to incentivize really good, proper care, ethical care and common sense medical care, rather than incentivizing the numbers game that is so common in healthcare today. Right. And we want to incentivize patients to have some so-called skin in the game. We use that phrase all the time when we have partner meetings at my practice because if people have skin in the game, I guess that would be a dermatology thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if they have skin in the game, they're more likely to take an interest in their health care and take better care of themselves and find less expensive alternatives. And if that was available, if they had that incentive to lower their prescription costs or lower their uh, health care costs, I think most people would do it. I think so. Point number eight, and it often comes down to this, is that there is an essential role for charity, for love, in anything that the, the Catholic Church does. And, and the problem is, when the government is providing something, how often do you think of government and love in the same sentence? Well, not often, and there's, there's a reason <laughs> for that. You know, there were no hospitals before Christianity. The, the whole idea of hospitals and caring for people other than, you know, in ancient times taking care of your soldiers so they could fight or in, in those ancient times taking care of your slaves so they could work, the idea of caring for another human being because of their inherent dignity is a truly Christian idea. The government has usurped that in our country by government-sponsored health care. The hospitals that you go to, many of them have religious names. They were all founded, for the most part, by religious orders, people of faith, in the interest of helping care for others. So especially folks in the Judeo-Christian tradition, have a special ownership of health care traditionally and should in modern times. When the government gets involved, it is no longer a case of a person out of love caring for another. It's a case of the patient now being entitled to this pseudo-right bestowed on them by the government and paid for by their neighbors. So the government needs to allow for such charity care to be done. A ninth point is any health care should protect future generations so that the younger generation does not have to pay disproportionately uh, for the, the older generation. There needs to be a more equitable way to do that. And, and that's an important point with our national debt and the rising cost of health care. Drugs that cost $100,000 a year, are they really worth that? How can we really maintain those those payments now rather than just pushing them to our children. And finally, point number 10, and I know this is near and dear to our guest, Senator Mike Braun's heart, and that is transparency. Patients have a right to know what their health care covers and what health care costs. And before you get the bill so that there's no surprises, I'm especially excited to talk about one of the bills he introduced to hopefully address this. 
And before we go to our break, I will pose our appropriately themed medical trivia question of the day. Since we're talking about health care legislation with Senator Braun, my question is, the first ever health care bill that passed Congress did so in the year 1798. My question, what group of people did it cover? We'll be back with our interview with Senator Mike Braun on Dr. Doctor after the break. Welcome to our special guest today on Dr. Doctor, Senator Mike Braun from the state of Indiana. He was elected to the Senate in November of 2018. He's a member of the Senate Health Committee, which includes health, education, labor, and pensions. He lives in Jasper, Indiana, is a member of St. Joseph's Catholic Church there. He has four children, and he's been married 42 years. He got his bachelor's degree in the state of Indiana at Wabash, and he went to a little school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for his Master's of Business Administration called Harvard. You may have heard of it. He's also president <laughs> and CEO of Meyer Distributing, which deals with aftermarket parts and accessories for trucks. Senator Braun, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Well, hey, it's great to be on the show, and uh, couldn't be a more pertinent topic than... Uh, a show uh, titled Dr. Doctor, not in this day and age. So well, uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, our pleasure. Now, in your first 100 days in office, you've submitted at last count at least four bills related to health care. Why are you so passionate about health care? Well, I'll tell you what. When I um, you know, was running into those issues back 10, 11 years ago, after having my company, I think for that point at, what, 28, 29 years, um, I was tired of the litany of uh, being told that I was lucky. It's only going up, uh, you know, five to ten percent each year. And uh, <laughs> we were a small enough company to where, up to that point, I started with just uh, back in '81 with a company that had 15 employees. Uh, my dad had a partial ownership in it and said it needs to be helped out. And of course, that was a year that uh, the farm crisis occurred and every product they sold was to farmers. So it was kind of a baptism by fire. And it was a little company for 17 years. And to be honest, it was an affordable fringe benefit, never had to worry about it. It kept from the late mid nineties, uh, you know, through the time I said enough was enough, which was back in 2008, it got to be too big a part of our bottom line. And I just was unhappy with the industry telling me that I had to accept that. So I kind of took the approach then after learning the underlying factors that I needed to get my employees more engaged in their own well-being. Uh, I wanted them to also have skin in the game so that when they did engage the healthcare system, they do like you do in any other thing that you buy. You at least say, how much does it cost? And I wanted to try to hold their premiums down. So really... Uh, created health savings accounts. We were large enough to self-insure, found out how much money the insurance companies were making on my plan. <laughs> and we saved an unbelievable amount out of the gate. I did have my employees involved in their own well-being, and it worked. So I've not had a premium increase for almost nine years, and I don't know that we'll have to because we've driven costs down by having skin in the game, creating the tools of transparency and uh we've got good coverage now and like i say i lowered family health care plans by 1400 bucks a year uh in early 18 once tax reform went through so trying to have some of that rub off out there not only on employer provided insurance but also medicare and medicaid senator we have done the same things in our practice two years ago. I couldn't agree with you more. Having skin in the game is huge. Now, you brought up some points that you have enacted in your own company, and you brought some of these into these four bills of yours. And your bills are so short that unlike the Affordable Care Act, we don't have to pass them to find out what's in them. Now, <laughs> as we look at those bills, which of the four do you think has the best chance of impacting healthcare in America the most if enacted? 
Well, the most recent one that I dropped, which was just a price transparency bill, yes, <laughs> uh, meaning that if you're in the business of providing a health care service at any level, you publish your prices understandably in print or on the web. Um, I tried that back as a state legislator in 2015, could not get a committee hearing in the state of Indiana, which normally embraces good common sense ideas, but the healthcare lobby, especially the big corporations that dominate the industry now, didn't want anything of it. I had that was the mildest bill I introduced then. I also introduced a bill that you post the Medicare pricing along with, you know, whatever you're charging as a guideline. Uh, that of course was a little hotter topic. One going to happen, and then the big thing I did, and I just talked to a group earlier today and said, wow, if you could get that done, and that's to expose these third-party contracts that providers and insurance companies have that kind of cloak the system, which would be the key thing that transparency needs to cure. I've not done that at the federal level. That almost uh, caused such a ruckus at the state house when that topic came up. You know, that's something down the road. I'd like to just get some basic stuff done. And I tell the industry and I tell the big CEOs of these big companies, start doing this yourself. Or do you know how close we are to some of the craziness out there, like Medicare for all, to actually be what happens? Because you as an industry and some of us that even use the service have not been able to get through with fixing the system from within. So that was one bill, transparency. The other bill was to get rid of the rebates given by pharmacies to, or by uh, Big Pharma to pharmacy benefit managers. It's about $150 billion a year. Wow. Only, only $65 billion makes it to the consumer and the pharmacies. $85 billion goes for overhead and profits of the pharmacy benefit manager companies. Uh, the other bill I did was to speed the process of especially biologics and any brand drugs into becoming generics. A lot of tricks are employed by the drug companies to slow the process. Yes. And then for the generics that are made overseas by tried and true manufacturers, to get those back into the USA without having to go through the cumbersome FDA process that keeps tried and true uh, low-cost drugs from coming back to this country. So that's probably about as much as you could expect to get accomplished or to at least discuss to get the ball rolling. That's that's not bad. You're averaging a bill every 25 days on health care. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's pretty good. And I, you know, I'm really excited, especially hearing about the health savings accounts that you used in your own company, and then especially about the transparency of costs. Those are two things that really are going to help patients and, and your average day American. In, in thinking about this, I was wondering you're so passionate about health care reform, especially common sense reform. What are some of the ethical principles that are, are guiding you to, to keeping this one of your main passions? Well, I look at how free enterprise is supposed to work, Tom, and it's based upon full transparency, as few barriers to entry as you can get, uh, robust competition, and then other than doctors who I equate to farmers and big egg, uh, both caught in the swirl of where most of the folks that pull the levers in your industry, you know, are the next step below being a government almost in their size and power. And the ethics that drive me is that in my own business, uh, you know, you do things honestly, you hard work, you work hard, uh, you embrace competition, even though you might become a casualty of it. That's what makes things work in all other arenas, and ironically, the two places where costs are going up most quickly in our economy and that are most dear to families would be health care and education. You know, post-secondary education oh, yes. is another big uh, concern of mine, uh, and it has recently eclipsed health care as the fastest rising year-over-year -year cost of any major sector of our economy. That is incredible. But yes, I have 
seven children. Three are in college and uh, another one next year. So I know all about those those cost issues. I, I want to point out to our listeners that your bill on transparency is is huge. When I mentioned this bill to my practice manager, I think she would be your new best friend if this passed because <laughs> this kind of information is sought after and it's actually illegal for us to tell any other medical practice what we get paid by insurance companies for different procedures or visit codes. And by opening this up, I think it would really level down a lot of the costs. So I, I heartily applaud you on that bill. And think about how things have changed in the last 10 to 15 years. And how many times at a grocery store have you seen somebody on their iPhone shopping for something that only costs four or five bucks to save 50 cents? Yes. Imagine if you unleashed that power on something that costs as much as healthcare can. And the other thing, the reason consumers have not been in the equation is it's been shrouded and paternalistic in the delivery, yes. not only through government paid for health care, but even within companies. So consumers do the heavy lifting through all the tools you've got now. And imagine if we could unleash that. That's kind of what I did in my own company. Uh, even though it was tough to find the tools, I'll never forget the day we went live. And I did remove co-payments as one of the features because co-payments are what cause plans to cost so much. And I traded off, I'll pay for 100% outside of your deductible. I got rid of coinsurance, which most people don't even know what that is. That's a percentage you pay until your stop loss kicks in. Yes, That's a real burden to employees and can send somebody to bankruptcy court. I absorbed that in the plan I designed. I simply asked my employees, shop around for the little stuff. And when we went live, a guy had a $200 a month medication that he was only paying $10 a month for with the copay. And I said, have you ever shopped around for it? And he gave me kind of a sarcastic answer. Well, why would I with a $10 copay? Yes. I said, touche, you got me there. I said, let's see if you can find it on the Internet. Uh, let's see if we can find a price without going to Canada. Found it in almost 15 seconds for 99 bucks from a reputable mail order pharmacy here in the U.S., wouldn't even have to waste the time to go get it. I said, my goodness, this can't be true that with one little bit of effort, you save 50%. It's been basically like that since we designed the plan, simply putting a little effort into by having skin in the game to find the best deal. Well, that's what the health sharing ministries have been doing also. The same thing, a lot of skin in the game, radically reduced prices. I'm curious with your bills, do you have any co-sponsors or any positive feedback that you've gotten from other senators? Definitely. And I'm even getting close to getting several Democrats coming on board, which Ooh, that's when gee. the cascade starts to occur. Yes. Of this stuff, not only being there for discussion, but to where it'll get into a committee. And when I explain it from the point of view that, hey, I know you think this is too far gone, that the only solution is Medicare for all, most of them do, uh, wouldn't you want to lower the cost of Medicare and Medicaid by bringing down prescription drug prices? Oh, that makes sense. That's why I've got two or three of them considering signing on when leadership doesn't want anything like that done because it looks like it might take away from the idea of government handling health care payments in total. So you run into those dynamics, too, to where even common sense stuff like that may not make it through leadership, letting you co-sign those bills. That's the way this screwed up system works. So. <laughs> well, you know, Senator Braun, you had mentioned Medicare for All. Last week on our show, we interviewed uh, a lawyer, actually, to explain some of the repercussions of Medicare for All. And especially being a Republican, I was wondering what kind of response do the Republicans have? Do you guys have a, a proposal or, or something that a rebuttal of some kind to help either prop up or replace uh, Obamacare? Sadly, we've been so focused on repeal that we've not had a comprehensive plan. Um, when I was talking about this stuff on the campaign trail, I always pointed out just because I'm a Republican, in my own plan, I covered pre-existing conditions, no cap on coverage, 
kids can stay on the plan until they're 26. The people didn't believe you because you're a Republican. And we're <laughs> largely to blame for that because we've been apologists to the industry that's made up of these large corporations from the hospitals, the drug companies, uh, you know, across the board. And uh, we got to quit doing that. And when President Trump, if you remember, about two weeks ago, declared that Republicans were going to lead on health care, I love the exuberance, but we weren't ready to do it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't get ready and have something rolled out as we approach the 2020 election. So I'm going to be one that is going to be outspoken about don't just try to rail against Medicare for all. We did that when we tried to repeal without replacing properly Obamacare. That didn't work. Egg on our face. Amen. We'll be right back with more of Senator Braun after the break here on Dr. Doctor, coming to you live from Redeemer Radio. We're back now to finish this interview with freshman Senator Mike Braun from the great state of Indiana. Last September, we interviewed former Senator Rick Santorum about a Uh, a proposal that he's worked together with the Heritage Foundation, the Galen Institute, and the Catholic Medical Association called the Healthcare Choices Proposal. And, uh, you know, we'd love you to learn about this so that we can perhaps promote this because it takes the idea of uh, returning money to the states from the government in the form of block grants so that the states can determine what they need, and then it's forever out of the hands of the federal government. And once it's in the state's hands, it probably wouldn't go back toward a Medicare for all. Does does that make sense to you? That would be a lot better than what we're currently doing. And how parallel was that to the Graham-Cassidy approach? Yeah, very Uh, much so. Yes. Very similar. So uh, that, again, is something that's going to get caught in the swirl of what happens leading up to 2020, because I know the other side of the aisle is not going to like that. They believe so firmly in the federal government as, you know, being the kind of dynamic controller, not the states. And uh, I think that my hope is that we get some of these things that are going to lower costs that aren't as broad an impact as we're laying out a comprehensive plan into 2020 Because, Tom, it's been so polarized out there now that I've been there up close and personal with it that that kind of stuff won't get on the docket probably by leadership of either either party. So uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it or maybe incorporate it into a comprehensive replacement as we uh, as we craft it. I realize that's going to be one of the struggles, especially looking at the 2020 election really having the votes in both the House and the Senate is probably going to be essential to pass any meaningful... It'll be tough. Yeah. Yeah. Is that why President Trump said he wasn't going to do anything with health care until after 2020? That's true, because after that um, Tuesday here a couple, three weeks ago, uh, I, I could see the expression on Leader McConnell's face. And to be honest, I agreed with it in the short run because we had no game we had nothing put together i just don't think that we can lay low and roll it out after 2020 that sounds like a default to doing nothing so we would love to talk to you in the future as you i I am sure you'll be one of the people helping put something together for a comprehensive response Um, and we i definitely will be i really appreciate the the bills you've introduced as well because one of the things that i've always wondered as kind of a political observer is why are we always doing things you know whole bore can't we just pick a few little things that many people would agree on and get those done see what we have left and so your bills really look to do that and i'm, I'm appreciative well uh, thank you for that and uh, i do believe in this current atmosphere that's the best that we can do now a different topic but that's yeah. very important to physicians and most patients don't don't know about it. And that's something called physician burnout. And and burnout, you know, for our listeners, is comprised of three different symptoms. One, just emotional or physical exhaustion. Two, 
cynicism, where you start to look at a patient as a disease instead of a person. And number three, you feel like in your work, it's not making any difference for anybody. And in multiple studies, over half of physicians are suffering from it. And the cause is not in the physician. The cause is actually the system with all of its rules, with the electronic health record, et cetera. And in fact, I'm going to recommend that our listeners go on the internet and look for a six-minute video by a doctor called Z-Dog, Z-D-O-G-G-M-D. And my question to you is, do people in Congress realize how the current system is just crushing the life out of so many physicians so that they're retiring earlier or cutting back on their hours? You know, I think it would be analogous again to farmers and big ag. And <laughs> That anxiety, and, you know, I don't, I can't think of two jobs tougher at this stage of the game that are, you know, in a swirl of uncertainty, and especially healthcare, because look at how that's changed uh, versus 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and you've got so many variables that are outside of your control. Uh, I don't think most politicians are, most of the public realize that, but I was with uh, a bunch of uh, residents, uh, guys that were, and I, yeah, I think in this case they were all guys uh, that were in medical school or either in residency. And rural markets are where they want to end up. And talking about the debt that's accumulated that they got to carry into their job once they get out. Uh, we didn't get into the discussion of all the other variables of what you're talking about, but I think that that's underappreciated. And I was surprised that um, for IU Med School, I think they only take like 350, maybe 400 tops and had 10 times as many applicants as what, you know, they could accept. And that kind of gave me a little hope that uh, maybe people weren't getting discouraged, but that still doesn't mean that once you're there, all dressed up, ready to go, <laughs> that you're not thrown into the turmoil of something that uh, is going to create that kind of anxiety and burnout. That would be tragic because once we get you go through that whole gauntlet, spend all those years, accumulate the debt, and then you lose your heart and soul for wanting to do it with a full head of steam. That's, that's not good. Thank you for understanding. You know, Senator, one of the things I also wanted to ask about changing topic just a little bit um, was the Medicaid expansion with Obamacare. I've had, I've run into several issues with this, and most notably the difference between having health insurance and having access to health care. Uh, I'm reminded of a story about DeMonte Driver from Washington, D.C., who he died of a toothache because he couldn't get into a doctor who took Medicaid. In Washington, mm. D.C., doctors get paid about 38 cents on the dollar for seeing Medicaid patients. The idea of having health insurance seems like a good thing when we're talking about Medicare for all, but the idea of having access or having doctors that are able to see patients with those insurance plans is something totally different. With Obamacare, so many middle-class, working-class families, even families with two incomes, are now in the Medicaid pool. Is there any hope of getting these folks, kind of giving them the option to get back into the private market so they can have a choice and real access to health care? Well, you know, that's how government normally works. Uh, and you're trying to, you know, I never question probably their intentions. Uh, it's just that whenever you try to run a command system that, first of all, pays 38 cents on the dollar, uh, you, common sense tells you you're going to probably have a capacity issue. You're not going to have as many places to go to. And what I would hope that could happen is that through reforming the system, you wouldn't need as many people to go there because you do what we were talking about, uh, getting prices down to where you'd have providers that were willing to do it because they made the choice to do it. And you had consumers that had uh, the ability to make that choice there without the government mandate telling providers exactly what they can charge. Every provider, every doctor, I'm sure, has got a little different cost structure. But I know one thing, there aren't many places that could stay in business and provide the service if all of a sudden it was a 62% discount. Uh, that's the trouble with government. 
it's one extreme or the other. So, you know, whether it's crafted in a way to help the people that can't afford it through a voucher system of some sort that would let them, you know, kind of do what I'd love to see everybody else do, participate in a more free choice market type system. That's what we're discussing now. And uh, that's a little more complicated for the average individual to probably understand than all of a sudden Medicare for all, which the people that reach 65 get on the Medicare know that it's kind of relief because you've at least eliminated the worry about how you're going to pay for things. We've just got to find a happy medium somewhere in between that's going to work for everybody. You know, and that's that's the challenge we've got in front of us. As an elected representative of the people, what do you recommend to the so many people who are frustrated with problems with health care? What can they do to influence legislation? Well, still most folks deal with the health care system through uh, employers and private insurance. Um, you're going to need to start being more engaged in your own well-being. Um, I'm sure you would uh, push prevention yes. uh, as opposed to remediation. Yes. And I know when I started my plan, I incorporated a few features. We pay 100% of wellness. Uh, I charge you more if you smoke and don't take a free biometric screening. And um, believe it or not, we still have to charge people because they won't take a free biometric screening. That means you have been derelict about your own well-being. And so much of that attitude is that it's been taken care of for me, the way the health system has evolved. It's created more demand than what what is necessary if you avoid it in the first place and people wake up we're at a tricky time uh, in terms of what health care is going to be like if we go from a system that's definitely broken like it is currently it'd be going from the frying pan into the fire medicare for all because all other places do end up lowering the cost but they have rationing they have other quality concerns due to the fact government's forcing it through a system that doesn't have free participation and choice on the part of consumers and providers, we're at an interesting time to where we may be able to have the best of both worlds, but we can't take long to get that system devised. People are getting fed up. They've had so many complications concerning, you know, bills that have been uh, taking them to bankruptcy court, uh, and other stuff, but, you know, we're really at a delicate point in time, in my opinion. Is there any kind of popular um, uprising when people are saying things to their senators and congressmen that they listen to with regard to health care? Not unless you've done like what I've done to make it a central feature. It's been so paternalistic in the way it's been delivered through private health insurance to where the consumer doesn't ever engage the system until they're sick or have a bad accident. And, um, you know, I don't know that we'll see that uh, kind of welling up of grassroots uh, concern. And I think when that happens, the easier message to understand is going to be Medicare for all, not a system that wants to try to fix it within the free enterprise context. That's why I tell the industry please get with it, get out of the comfort zone, start doing the things to fix yourself so you don't have one business partner, only the federal government. Everybody will regret that if that's where we go. And, you know, Senator, the the cost of health care is obviously one of the biggest problems. Another concern that I have, especially being a Catholic physician, is the rights of conscience, especially the, the rights to life for our patients. One of yep. my biggest fears with Medicare for All is if, if there's no opportunity to have recourse to another partner, the government's the only partner, and like in Senator Sanders' proposal for Medicare for All, it really would put a huge burden on the conscience rights of health care providers. Is there any kind of hope for conscience protection in D.C. at this time? Well, I would hope that uh, those of us that would share that same concern would never let something be set up 
that would actually start to uh, have decisions like that uh, being run by a bunch of bureaucrats that, uh, you know, will be ill-equipped to do it. I am hoping we never go down that road. You never know. Uh, when the government gets involved in stuff, uh, it's a different mechanism, and it generally, you know, is going to be second to what can occur if you devise a system that works along the parameters of what I talked about, transparency, competition, no barriers to entry. Uh, that's delivered us a livelihood and a well-being in this country that has put us where we are. We just need to figure out how we get that done in healthcare. Time's running short. It though, is. Because I, was, I was wondering people if we're so frustrated. So yes, and time is running short with our interview. We we're wondering if you had any last comments you want to make to our listeners. No, I think uh, as they get to know me better, uh, I got out of the comfort zone myself of having a successful company. Three of my four kids work in it. I've got three grandkids that live in my hometown. The question I get asked most often is, why did you do it? And the reason I did it is more of us have to get involved, whether you know health care, whether you know infrastructure. And the federal government has gotten to the point where it's been being run increasingly by a huge bureaucracy that is you know, kind of there going with the flow and guided by a board of directors of senators and U.S. reps that are too cozy with government as a solution. And the reason I ran is uh, to try to change that dynamic a little bit. And Hoosiers can count on that. I'll speak up on things I know something about and try to uh, you know, shake things up a little bit while I'm in D.C. Senator Mike Braun, thank you so much for being our special guest today on Dr. Doctor. Thank you for having me on. And we're back to finish up this episode of Dr. Doctor. First, though, the trivia question. And, I was excited to see that trivia question because I had no idea that people were talking about government government intervention in healthcare even that long ago. No, and it's so long ago I don't remember it. So, <laughs> so the question is, the first ever healthcare bill passed Congress in 1798. What group of people did it serve? When you saw or heard this question, Andrew, did you have any idea that this was going to be the answer? I did not, but it, it does make sense. Well, President John Adams, on July 16, 1798, signed the first Frederick, Frederick, yeah, federal public health law, an act for the relief of sick and disabled seamen. Yes, uh, uh, sailors were assessed 20 cents a month when they came into an American port. It was the first prepaid medical plan in our country. And the monies used, uh, the, the monies collected were used for six seamen and the building of hospitals for them. And 20 cents went a long way back then, I think. Oh, it's not the same today, is it, Andrew? <laughs> well, I, I was so happy to hear from Senator Braun. I was especially interested in his bill that would allow transparency so patients would know how much care would cost before they received the care. Oh, that, that would be a game changer. So, and his Senate bill number 913 um, does do this. So you can look that up on, on the Internet, just Senate Bill 913, Senator Mike Braun, to, to see what's in there. Well, I was excited also to talk to him about some of the health care choices proposal action plan where there would be block grants to the state, respecting subsidiarity, giving the states the ability to help make decisions about folks' health care, while also protecting the right to life and right to conscience for doctors. Yes. Yeah, so he brought up in his interview several of the 10 points we talked about at the beginning of the show. He talked about uh, transparency. Uh, he talked about proper incentives uh, with his uh, bill, Senate 657, that would pass on savings from pharmaceutical companies to uh, these benefit middleman pharmacies, that all of those benefits would have to be passed on to the consumer, less any true administrative costs. Yes, I think that was a good one. And I love the idea of 
drugs that are already being used safely in other countries, streamlining those so that patients can use them here, hopefully in an affordable way. Right, and that fits uh, with the, the dignity of choices. And he, as a practicing Catholic, does say that he fully supports respect for life and conscience so that physicians have the right to tell patients when they think something isn't good for them. It's, it's my only hope that in the coming years as they're debating this that we can put something together that's more sustainable than our current plan, but also something that would respect these 10 principles of Catholic health care. Uh, and I love this, uh, this focus on subsidiarity. That seems to be near and dear to his heart. He also is really big on uh, patients uh, taking responsibility for their own health care. I love the example he gave of his uh, employee who had a $10 copay for a $200 a month drug, and in 15 seconds he could find a drug that costs half as much. I think if we gave those incentives more to patients, uh, I think we would have a much better system. Yep, that's subsidiarity at work. Well, we love it here on Dr. Doctor. And We're, we'd like to provide that resource also referring to the healthcare choices proposal for people to look up. Yeah, if you just uh, Google like Heritage Foundation and Healthcare Choices uh, Proposal, uh, and even Senator Rick Santorum's name. All those things will get you there on the Heritage Foundation website. But a number of groups have been working on this, and this is kind of an outgrowth of a previous bill from about a year and a half ago called the Graham-Cassidy Bill, which the CMA did support. And and we are supporting this health care choices proposal as well. It's my hope that this sees some action, and hopefully bipartisan action, in the coming years. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend, and invite them to listen on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week as well for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing a sobering topic and a sad topic of sexual abuse in children with child counselor Margaret Rogers from Panama City, Florida. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.